guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Kate. And I'm Wes. We are very excited to have Linda Herview joining us here today. Linda Herview is a journalist and photographer and the author of Forgotten, the untold story of D-Day's black heroes at home and at war, which has received raving reviews since it was released just over one year ago. Tom Brokaw called it utterly compelling, and the Washington Post said it is a welcome addition to our understanding of the war and the American military. In addition, her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Daily Beast, and the New York Daily News. Thank you so much for joining us, Linda. Thank you for having me. One of the most interesting things we've heard from other speakers on our show is this concept of inflection points, or points when people realize they needed to pivot, be it in their personal lives or their professional careers. What's a moment that you can speak to in your life that you believe really changed the path that you're on and brought you to where you are today? Um, well, that would have to be 12 years ago, exactly 12 years ago, actually, when uh, I moved to Paris. Um, I had been a newspaper editor in New York, was very happy with staying and doing that. And um, my husband was transferred. He's a journalist also with a press agency. And I reluctantly gave up a really good job at a time when newspapers are in decline. So like this had limited, I, I knew that time was running out to, to enjoy a lot of these um, big newspaper jobs. And um, we moved there and that forced me to be a writer again, also to be a freelance writer in another language. Um, though I was of course writing in English for American media, um, I had to learn French well enough to interview people. I was terrified of making a mistake. Um, and I, I was inspired by uh, a reporter at the New York Daily News who also moved to France a little bit after me. And she was fearless. She spoke less French than me. And she just didn't care about making a mistake. She just plowed through. And I was just so worried about making a mistake. And I think that... Um, that's normal, but also you really have to push yourself when you have changes like this in your life out of your comfort level. Working in New York City was a huge change for me, but this was something else entirely. Um, and so that, I would say that for me, uh, I mean, this book never would have been written. I wouldn't have come, come on to the subject. I also wouldn't have been able, with a staff job, to free myself for the extensive amount of time that I had to research this book and write it. It was six years from beginning to end. So if it wasn't for that change in my life, I wouldn't be talking to you right now and I wouldn't be on this extended book tour um, that is continuing now because the paperback's out. So it feels like a never-ending book tour, but the invitations keep coming for this subject. <laughs> so I'm grateful. <laughs> Evidently, you wrote a really good book. <laughs> or I think it's a subject that resonates, particularly now in America, where we have a lot of stories of, um, you know, there's always been raised problems in America, and not just America, but pretty much it's a global issue. And this is something that people can really rally around because it is um, a World War II story. We love World War II stories. We love heroes. We love veterans in this country. And so, you know... I think it's it's an easy subject for people to say, yeah, let, let's let's say thank you to these men who served. And in doing so, what I hope is that people learn a little bit more about our history, because my book is really a social history of, of this country through the, the experiences of these men who were in um, D-Day's only African-American combat unit. 
You said that you never would have written this book if it weren't for your experience in moving to Paris. What got you started on the subject? How did you begin the process and idea of writing this book? Well, in June of 2009, it was the 65th anniversary of D-Day, and the French government went all out because uh, people just didn't believe that these men would still be alive for the 70th anniversary. They were already in their 90s. Um, and... It, you know, President Obama, the Queen, all these world leaders came to Normandy. And one American was honored uh, that week, and it, he was uh, William Dabney from uh, Roanoke, Virginia. And I wrote a story about him for the New York Daily News. Um, a lot of other newspapers wrote about him. He was on a couple of front pages. Um, and we American reporters were really fascinated that you know, they told us he was the last living member of D-Day's only black combat unit. They flew these barrage balloons, which sounded really strange. Like, what are these balloons the Army had? What were they all about? So there were a lot of things that really, um, you know, sparked our curiosity as journalists. And when it was finished, I, I wrote this one story on him. I thought, well, it's such a shame to just do one story on these guys. Um, I had a lot of reporting that I did, and I learned a lot about, you know, I didn't know the Army was segregated back then. It was uh, a reflection of the southern U.S. Um, and so uh, I asked a friend at a magazine in New York, you know, do you think a magazine would be interested in them? And he said right away, you should talk to an agent because this sounds like a book. And not having ever written a book, I thought, well, how do you know what you're going to get to say that it could be a whole book? Yeah. And so that launched the process for me. Um, I did speak to an agent who's been with me ever since, just the biggest advocate for this book. Um, and so thanks to her and her pushing me and pushing me, we eventually found enough to sell a book proposal and then it took me another couple of years to write the book. So we've actually been lucky to have um, quite a few journalists with us this semester, uh, some from the New York Times and other places. And so it seems like for you, being a journalist and being an author of a historical book like this are really not very different. I think that sometimes people think of, a, of journalism as a very specific kind of role nowadays. How do you see those skills in journalism translating to like writing a book or perhaps other things? Well, it all comes down to storytelling. And, and I mentioned earlier how, you know, or alluded that it's been sad as a journalist starting out in newspapers to watch newspaper circulation drop off to the point where newspapers, uh, all newspapers are laying people off. And the mission of newspapers in a way has seemed to shrink because we have smaller staffs now and such, but storytelling is always there and sort of relevant to any communications field or any communications major here at a college uh, that someone might be pursuing. If you know how to tell a story, and what does that mean? It means reporting, it means digging, it means being relentless. I mean, these are reporting skills, but they're also skills that really anybody who's working on a project should know. Um, also dissertations. I mean, it's it's a very common um, set of skills. And so as a journalist, I was set up in a, in a good way to, to launch this project. Uh, they told us that, like I said, Bill Dabney was the only man from this battalion alive, but I'll give you an example. Um, 
when I said afterward, well, how do you know that? You know, I mean, I guess we should have all asked that first because the answer was, well, we assume because these men are very old, um, but nobody checked, you know, so I had to find a way to find these men. And I thought, well, I'll go to the National Archives and an army records of this. There must be army records on this unit. There must be rosters. Well, there aren't. And as an, there, there was an army, uh, like a brief history of this battalion. They, they have like their own summary that they wrote up. Um, but not a lot of, not enough detail to write anything complex on them. And there were no rosters of men. So reporters are taught to go where the money is. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe if personnel records and unit records are missing, uh, and only 1% of Army World War II records still exist today, um, I thought, well, maybe there's payroll records because organizations yeah. tend to keep money records. And bingo, we found them at St. Louis. Missouri has Army archives that have payroll records. So I was able to request the payroll records at the time these men shipped abroad to Britain, which would be a life-changing experience for them yeah. and true freedom for the first time. And I used that group of names uh, with a researcher, the retired librarian from the Daily News. She had just retired um, and she was able to help me search, you know, a thousand names and uh, eventually found 12 men alive uh, who could talk. And I'm sure there, there were, there's others, but if they weren't in the same place where they were paid in 1943, if their home address was different, if their names were common, and many of these names were common, um, it was hard to find them. So somebody named Wilson Caldwell Monk was much easier to find than William Brown. Yeah. You know, so... Uh, that was the biggest hunt was finding these men and racing to interview them because, you know, these men, I mean, the youngest man in this battalion, as far as we know, was, was or as far as any of the men knew, was um, William Dabney, who was 89 when I met him. And he was a 17-year-old when he enlisted in the Army wow. and had to get permission from his grandmother to do that because that was too young. Um, and so he was 89 and he was the baby. So you can imagine, I mean, these men were advanced in age and a lot of the, the officers who I would have loved to interview were long since dead because, you know, they were 10 years older than some of the enlisted men. So it was really a shame to, that I didn't know about this 10 years before I did, because even 10 years, there would have been so many more men still with us and their memories also would be sharper because the 90 year old memory is not what the 60 year old memory is you know or of course so a lot of these men didn't have really detailed memories and they also hadn't talked about this for seven decades so that was very challenging to try to extract their memories again, reporting, you know, repeating the same questions, coming back to them when I had more information, like when I found out the name of the ship that they took to, um, to Britain, because none of them remembered that. But it was a converted Cunard ocean liner. There were three big cruise ships at the time. They were the fastest ships on, on the seas, and they traveled across uh, the ocean from New York to Britain, 
with up to 16,000 young men and the sinking of any one of these by a German sub, which they were hunting them in the North Atlantic. It was a harrowing journey for these men. That would have been the greatest tragedy of the war. So the men remembered the voyage, for instance, but they didn't remember enough of it. And eventually I was able to find the pieces to that. So when you're talking about what journalism adds to this, it, it gives you working as a reporter, a set of skills to chase stories like this, but you don't have to be a journalist. I think any like dissertation student, anyone doing a major thesis where you have to do a lot of original reporting knows what it's like to go on a hunt and not know if you're going to find what you need. One of the things that I saw on your website was the use of different kinds of media to kind of get this story out there a little bit. Um, especially the old pictures. You talked about finding like the pay stub records, but these old pictures are really incredible. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you found those? Yeah, that's a good question um, because now, right, as authors um, or as anybody who's out there in the public eye, you have to market yourself and you have to market your book. So I knew right away that images were going to be important. Um, I knew I was going to build a website around this book, and I've used the website as a complement to the book. So all of the men have their own pages under my gallery. Uh, I was able to get a lot of pictures. They had pictures. They didn't have things like letters and documents, particularly the ones who had changed, you know, who had scaled back their 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 house their houses. They sold their houses. They were living in smaller places in their in their in their old age. Um, so a lot of these records were gone, but they had some pictures and as you said, like the pictures are great and a lot of these really old pictures are colorized and, uh, my book has the pictures in black and white. So you don't really get that full, like gorgeous, like pink cheeked portraits and things that people love. Last night I showed, uh, I, the families of many of the men were with me when I spoke last night in Washington at the um, Smithsonian's New African American Museum. And the, I, for all the families that were there and a few others, I, I put a slideshow together of the men so I could introduce them. And when people would see these old pictures that were just colorized like the way they were, they just um, really reacted. There were like lots of, the emotion was, was there, you know. and. Um, I tried to mix it with some modern pictures because some of the contemporary pictures of them um, are also pretty striking. You know, I tried to vary it so that in a couple of them, the men are holding their wartime pictures, you know, so you see like a very old hand holding, you know, the, um, the picture in the army uniform from the 40s. And, um, you know, I think that's very important. The video trailer for the book was important. I thought I would string together lots of video of the men. And then with the video tutor I've been using to really learn video well, I ended up using him as the editor on the project because he's so good. Um, And he said, no, no, you don't want to do that. You want to put their voices there, but you want a string of pictures. You don't want this rapid video going and I thought we'd have a voiceover I had a voice a man I used to work with all picked out he's like no you don't want a voiceover you just want you know and anyway I thought it really worked well and I hadn't watched the trailer for a long time and then I was at Texas State last week and the organizers played it and people were really affected by it and so was I I hadn't heard it in a while so 
you know, I, I think that it's really important to combine the media. So you have the stories, you have the pictures, you have the video, and you have to set yourself up to market it so that you get the message out to people so that, you know, the two of you are asking me about it today. Um, if I hadn't done all the marketing I did to get the word out, I don't know that we'd still be talking about the book a year later. So I'm very grateful because I really don't want these men to be written out of the record again. And I feel like if I stopped talking about them, that could happen. And, you know, it would be a shame because a lot of people don't believe there were any black soldiers at D-Day. Even to this day, I, I still have people say, oh, there weren't any black men who landed on the Normandy beaches. And I said, well, sure there were. There were 2,000. So, yeah. I really appreciate that, and I think your book, and through the use of multimedia and through all the interviews that you conducted, you did a really amazing job of illuminating an unheard perspective. How do you think other journalists or authors can really work to unearth these unheard perspectives and make sure that they are heard and talked about in the American public? And what are some challenges in that regard as well, of making sure you get the story right? Well, the first challenge is just getting your book published. It's much harder to get books published now. And advances, you know, when you sell a nonfiction book, you get a sum of money. And for most authors, that's all the money you're going to make. Unless you have a runaway bestseller, you're not going to make any money from sales. Um, so if you need to do a lot of research, as I did, you have to try to make sure that that book proposal that then goes up for auction is as good as it can be so that you can make as much money as possible to fund your research because this type of research is costly. You know, I traveled to archives in Washington and the Truman Library in Independence, Missouri, the Eisenhower Library in Abilene, Kansas, various army archives all over the place, and Britain because these men were there and I was really hoping to find a trove of records in the British archives about them or about similar units, African-American units that spent time in Britain. Britain was very key to these men and the effect of having these African-Americans in the villages of Wales and England were was so uh, life-changing for the people in these villages. And so, you know, you have to, you have to set yourself up first of all so that you can be able to do this research um, because it is a gamble. What if you what if you fund all your research and then you can't sell your book proposal? So that's the biggest that's the biggest thing. Now that with self publishing, a lot of authors have more choices. You know, so that's been good for some people. Uh, a friend, I someone I know, just published a book he worked on for six years, also through uh, a self publishing um, scheme that Barnes and Noble has and um, has been very happy with how that's been selling. So that's the first thing. Uh, finding, you know, I guess even before that is finding your, your story. That's, that hasn't changed, I think, since books have been written. It's all about finding a good subject. It's all about, I don't know how you do it. I mean, for me, I kind of stumbled into it. I just wrote a story and thought, hmm, maybe I should write more about this. Uh, a lot of reporters come to their stories like that, or agents read their stories and suggest to them, you know, hey, you should consider writing a book about this. And then the challenge is, you know, will they be able to get enough of an advance to leave work for six months a year to work on that book? Um, because, 
you know, labor research intensive books are labor intensive and you have to put the time in. So it's, it's just a challenge. I mean, you just have to be very creative about finding subjects, perhaps look for big anniversaries that are coming up. That's what I, I think that's probably how Eric Larson found his latest book on the Lusitania, which was the sister ship of the the ship that the men in my book took to Britain, it was sunk in World War One and was cited as a, one of the reasons the U.S. entered the war. That's not quite true, but that's what we believe today. And um, he took another look at it. And you would think, well, what else can be said about the Lusitania? It's like, you know, it was so it was over 100 years ago, but he found a way. And it's a great he's a great writer. That's a great book. So. That's another way. Look for anniversaries and go backwards. So you mentioned earlier that if you feel that if you stop talking about this book and stop telling these stories, then these people will kind of be forgotten again. And I think that indicates the very personal nature of this project to you. I mean, you worked on it for six years, but also um, beyond that, you are leading the push for Corporal Woodson, who worked as a medic for over 30 hours, helping hundreds of soldiers on the beaches of Normandy. Um, and he was nominated for the Medal of Honor, but he didn't receive it, and no African-American soldier received it during World War II. And since you've started a pledge saying that he can still be awarded that, that honor, um, h- how is this a job to you in some ways, but also a personal mission on top of that, it seems? Yeah, it's very personal. I got very close to these men and their families doing this book. Uh, Waverly Woodson I never met. He'd passed away in 2005 buried at Arlington National Cemetery. His uh, widow is a very, has become a very dear friend. And the family launched, because of this book, launched a petition drive to award him the Medal of Honor. And the Maryland Congressman, Chris Van Hollen, who was just elected to the Senate, um, he his office took over the campaign because essentially you have to build a case the Army has to approve it, and then the White House awards the medal. Um, but it's a long road. You know, President Obama in June of 2015 awarded a Medal of Honor to a World War I uh, African-American soldier, and that had been the culmination of a 20-year campaign that was part of that time was shepherded by Senator Schumer's office of New York. And um, so besides the Medal of Honor campaign, which is very important, and I really hope that Waverly Woodson gets it, um, but besides that, the other important thing for me was just not letting these men down. You know, I, I was interviewing them for years. Uh, Wilson Monk, who leads the book on from Atlantic City, New Jersey, I spoke to him constantly asking questions and became very close to him and found the family in Wales whose, whose grandmother had adopted him pretty much as a second son when he was stationed there. And it was, it was very emotional to meet them and to translate between the two, the two showing pictures from the states in, in, in Wales and bringing back pictures of uh, the couple, uh, Jesse and Godfrey Pryor in Wales, who had, you know, taken in this black soldier who was homesick 
and um, made him, you know, basically a member of the family, wrote these emotional letters back and forth. And so I just didn't want to let Wilson Monk down. You know, I wanted, unfortunately, he died before the book came out, but he knew that it was going to be a book. You know, and some of them, there's a few who are still with us who have been able to appear with me at different events. Bill Dabney in Roanoke, uh, Willie Howard in Washington, D.C., Henry Parham in Pittsburgh. Uh, they, I was able to, to go with them and, and talk about um, this book while it was being written and also um, afterwards. And that was really gratifying. But yeah, it. It really, and I think this probably happens a lot when you spend so much time on one subject. You know, there was just no way I was going to let them down. You know, even when I didn't know if I had enough to write the book, I was going to find a way to do it. So unfortunately, we are running out of time here. Um, But our final question is, what is your personal definition of success? And how might you uh, help students in defining success for themselves? Well, I think that success is a very personal term. There's certainly a public yardstick. Uh, We have it in all of our various careers, the path you're supposed to be on, what the, what the, what your, what your sort of cohort, your peers think is successful. But in the end, you know, you have to decide whether or not what your goals are and you have to set them and you have to work to achieve them while also being happy in your life. So would I have always been happy being a newspaper editor? Probably, but I wouldn't have pushed myself the way I had to push myself doing this. Um, I think it's good to get out of your comfort zone, to change where you live, to experience different things before you decide, okay, this is what I'm going to spend the bulk of my professional life on. It's hard to know. You know, I never thought I'd be living abroad. I never thought that I would want to write a long form anything, whether it was magazines or books. I was really a, a newspaper reporter who liked the daily buzz of all of that. So um, the best thing any anybody can do starting out is to just push all your boundaries and sort of take advantage of that push you get in your early 20s where you can work places that you can't work later because you can work as interns, you can work in entry-level jobs, and just like really find that niche and and then go for it, you know, push yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. So that is all the time we have for today. Thank you again for joining us, Linda. This has been wonderful. Uh, And to all the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.